you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast, markets unable to come back after yesterday's sell-off of major indices ending the day well in the red. The S&P less than 50 points from a bear market. And the weakness in a couple key names could send a big warning sign for what is still to come. Plus, the future of fintech payment stocks catching a bit today, but will investors keep charging into the space? We'll be joined by the former head of Square Capital to get some answers. And later, hold off. Twitter execs giving employees hope that a deal with Elon Musk will happen. We dig into the latest drama and what it could mean for the company. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Side in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Tim Seymour, and Bono and Eisen. We start off with another day of selling on the street. The S&P 500 Inc. inching ever closer to bear market territory, dropping another half a percent. And take a look at the continued weakness in what used to be pillars of the market. Target, Walmart, Apple, Coca-Cola, all mega cap names dropping today, adding to their losses for the week. On the flip side, check out these soaring stocks, Shopify, Rivian, Zoom Video, and more high multiple stocks in full rally mode. So what does this tell you about what the so-called safer stocks continue to crumble while the more speculative names rebound? Where are we in this decline, Dan? Uh, well, I think in the more speculative ones, they're kind of running out of sellers possibly at these levels, especially in the velocity in which they've come down over the last month or so. And the other thing is these were heavily shorted names, and I think that you're probably seeing some shorts cover at some of these levels here because I think it's getting harder and harder to justify selling some of those. Um, as far as the mega caps, you know, Mike Santoli just said something on the OT. I was just listening here the about uh, the overtime mm-hmm. uh, about Apple is really not being the sort of driver for the broad market the way it is. Well, the it bellwether. Is the bellwether. It is 7% of the S&P 500. It is 13% of the NASDAQ 100. And I think what's really interesting about this stock being so weak on a day like today here is that, you know, I think investors are starting to extrapolate some of the stuff that we heard out of some of these major retailers and saying, okay, well, here's a company that has lots of dollar exposure, has lots of exposure to manufacturing in China, has lots of exposure to supply chains as it relates to China, has lots of exposure to demand in Europe. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, right? And so to me, you know, it was kind of the last battle fought and it's trying to come apart right now here. So to me, I do think you want to keep an eye on Apple. But at some point, at Apple at 130 and those names firming up, maybe it does set up for a nice bounce. The bounces in the S&P, though, over the last month have been anemic. They've been really, really yeah. bad. And it feels like we're going to make new lows very I'm soon. Sitting at the cross-section of technology and consumer discretionary, that's not necessarily a good thing for Apple in this kind of market, Karen. So, you know, the fact that it continues to decline, it feels like 122, which is a recent low, 52-week low, mm-hmm. that that doesn't seem that far off at this point. No, it doesn't. And I think that it's for the reasons you said, right, the cross-section of those two things that are not popular right now, but also to be a, an expensive stock. And as we see market multiples come in. Wait, wait, wait. Apple's an expensive stock. <laughs> it's not an expensive stock. That's what you've been saying. No, 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 no. I've been saying Facebook is not expensive. Google is not expensive. Apple is expensive. I have said Apple is expensive. It deserves a premium. It's got one. I, now. I'm long. Uh, just to be clear, I have not said it is not an expensive stock. I have. Okay. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> but I think that. Every multiple is coming down, right? right? So I talk about something like Lulu, great company, expensive, 
even if they deliver, I still think the multiple will come down there. I'm long Apple, just to be clear. Right. And I do think that, uh, you know, I think that we're going to see some more weakness there. This this I was hoping for a little bit of bounce today. It sort of started off like one and then really no follow through at all. So that's, you know, a bit disappointing. I think we do break that Maginot line of Mm -hmm. 20 percent down, which is okay. Yeah. Bonwin, what do you make of this? Because, I mean, we, we mentioned Apple at the top as, as one name that continued declines. But, I mean, the Walmart, the Target, the Coca-Cola, I mean, the things that were viewed as sort of, you know, blue chip stocks you hold in your core portfolio that'll take you through tough times, they continued their declines. Yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> and earlier in the segment, you mentioned uh, some of the more speculative pockets and some of the app performance that we saw from them today. But you've got to keep in mind like, who the holders, one, who the holders of these companies are or of these shares are, two, what concentration and what percentage of said portfolios do they represent? You're going to have a lot more of your portfolio allocated to a Walmart, a Target, a Home Depot, a Lowe's, an Apple, et cetera, et cetera, than you are ever going to have uh, allocated to a Zoom. Even if you are the most um, aggressive uh, type of investor, just your beta adjustment is going to necessitate that you're allocated to those names versus the others. So I don't, you know, much like Dan said, I really don't think that is really representative of where we are in terms of a market potentially finding a bottom. In fact, it tends to make me more concerns that we're finally getting to the bellwethers and we're starting to see cracks there. And even in those earnings reports and in those re- <clears throat> And those guides uh, that that they those guidances that they provided, we still saw nothing pointing to weakness in the consumer, and so that can't be priced in. If that's the rhetoric that everyone is using, that means that that is still a variable. They have been strong. We've seen access to credit. They have been strong. We've seen rates rise. They have been strong. We've seen increase in in, in high yield credit spread. So you know all of these forward looking things don't necessarily bode well if that shoe is still to drop. I would say right now you have to actually be pricing in a rare upside case where the consumer remains strong. But if any of the other macro type of shoes that have dropped point anything to any remote weakness in the consumer, and it's not just about supply chain dynamics, then I think we continue to see weakness. And these you know, um, tertiary names that m- might outperform uh, you know, on a one-off basis are, aren't really where the focus should be. So does it feel, Tim, like they're, like they're coming after the generals, so to speak? Carter Worth brought that up um, on last night's show that, you know, when they come for the generals, that's when the trouble begins. And so we're seeing that in terms of Apple slide. And next could be energy, which had been a favorite of the market. I'm not ready to, to, to push back on energy. The generals conversation, for sure. I, you know, I, again, I, I said 125 on Apple is 3,800 on the S&P. I still believe that. And I think we have to get there. Um, and, and then let's have a conversation. I think there's some dynamics going on for the market that are really important this week, especially. You've got a trillion nine in notional and derivative contracts and options expiry uh, for Friday. You've had, there's a lot of chatter in the market that there's a couple of very large multi-strats uh, that went 
from you know, some leverage in April and got very excited about dispersion and the dynamics in the market and got very levered up and that uh, what you're actually seeing in terms of some of the bad stuff rising and some of the good stuff selling off is reversal. Dan referred to guys covering shorts. Well, I mean, some of the high quality companies that I think have been thrown out. And yeah, I, I understand what happened in retail this week with Walmart, Target, uh, you name it. But I, I do think some of this is way overdone. And I think some of these consumer staples names were actually part of that levering up and that part of pairs trades that I, I think are just being unwound here. Um, I think that the fact that the S&P is uh, going to have, it seems, it's, it's seven straight down week, which we haven't done since dot com, tells you where we are in terms of sentiment. And, and again, where I think a lot of these algos are just pushing this market around. Clearly, uh, if you look at some of the macro, we had a Philly Fed today. Uh, and this is a couple days after a New York Fed that was uh, awful. Uh, and I realize these are these regional Fed surveys of, of activity are very volatile series. But these are terrible numbers. And we've got multiple months in succession. We got housing numbers today um, that really did show a pullback. And there's some dynamics that, that could explain that. But I, I think, you know, that's where we are. I think there's some very high quality companies that were thrown out the window this week. And I, I think as much as I believe everything that we've said about what we heard from consumer companies, not one of these folks really talked about demand. That's what scares me. Uh, we just heard about margins. We heard about earnings. Um, we heard about companies inability to price correctly, especially the ones we thought that mm -hmm. they could. Um, I, I, I am worried that no one has talked about demand, even though we've implied that over and over. I know, which is. The scary thing. I mean, well, take a look at raw stores in the after hours before we move on, Dan. Raw stores plunging, right, because of weaker than expected revenue. Also talking about the Russia-Ukraine conflict exacerbating inflationary pressures on the consumer. It's down 23 percent in one shot. I mean, these are yeah. meme stock-like moves. Well, that, that's one thing companies. that I was going to say, though, about what happened with Target yesterday is that I actually thought that Brian Cornell, he's a great operator, great CEO. I think the, it, what he said about consumer, that they were shifting, right, from higher priced, higher margin things um, to like luggage. Um, that was not a great explanation. That did not actually make me feel any better about what the consumer's doing because all you have to go and look at is Airbnb at 52-week lows and Expedia at 52-week lows and say that just doesn't mesh up that well, okay? So food inflation, though, and my friend Danny Moses just said this to me um, as it relates to Walmart and Target. He's like, food and the, the higher prices in places like Walmart and Target, that's taking more of the cart right there. Right. So, so that is a problem for the consumer because all those things that Tim just detailed are not not getting any better any soon right now because the Fed hasn't even started their quantitative tightening, right? They've just raised 75 basis points at two meetings, and we know we're going to get 250 basis points. We know the delay that it takes for that to work into the economy. So I just think that we're probably not as close to the end of this cycle, this tightening cycle, as a lot of people who are bullish on the stock market think we are. Okay, with all that said, Karen, Walmart, mm -hmm. third day of declines. Right. Target, another <laughs> terrible day today. Right. How are you thinking about your positions? So I'm thinking in light of Target's release, mm -hmm. I think about Walmart differently. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, I think I tweeted, you know, <laughs> in hindsight, uh, you know, they might have hit it out of the park with that inventory number, which we see everybody coming up with a lot of inventory. So um, I think, though, Target has been really, really massacred. That, to me, looks a little more interesting than Walmart, which was more expensive going in, right? So uh, the target multiple now is low double digits, right? However, the one thing I hated the most about their conference call was we have this 5.3-ish margin 
operating margin with a wide plus or minus around it. That I found a little bit unsettling. But I do think he's a great operator. And, you know, the question is, is he going to be, a, you know, sort of a, a, a great operator among terrible operators where it doesn't really matter? Or can they come out of it? So I'm not a seller of Target here, but I did not buy any. It's only day two. Right, of the three-day rule. Um, our next guest is sounding the alarm on stagflation. Economist Stephen Roach is former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. He's now a Yale University senior fellow. Um, great to have you, Stephen. So stagflation is your base case scenario. Why is that? Well, Melissa, the stagflation scenario is something I wrote about uh, two years ago in the FT, and I worried more about the supply side than the demand side. But now the demand side has really gotten uh, away from the Fed, and um, the Fed has a massive amount of tightening to do, not even... uh, the markets are not even close to discounting the full extent of what's going to be required to uh, bring the demand side uh, under control. And so I think that uh, just underscores the deep hole that Jerome Powell is in right now. So to the pundits and to the Fed officials who say that inflation has peaked, inflationary pressures would abate in the back half of the year, what do you say to them? Isn't that, shouldn't that be something good that, that can alleviate that that base case scenario? You know, I think the the peak inflation rate argument is um, sort of a cheap argument. I mean, you know, when you go up as fast as we have, as high to as high a level or rate as we have, uh, you know, peaking is sort of an arithmetic uh, uh, obvious outcome here. Uh, The question is where we go beyond the peak. I think inflation is going to stay uh, above 5% through the end of the year. That would uh, be well uh, above the nominal federal funds rate is discounted in the market. So we've still got a negative real federal funds rate, which is uh, miles away from neutrality, if you want to call it that, um, that is associated with uh, a more even-keeled uh, monetary policy and not even close to the restrictive policy that will ultimately be required to bring inflation down. It's Karen. Thanks for being on. So if let's say that 5% inflation scenario is correct. If you were Jay Powell, how quickly do you get to 5% or somewhere? I mean, maybe you don't. Get I think to 5%. you got to get there a lot faster, Karen, than, than the sort of 50 basis point increments. I mean, even if he does 50 basis points in each of the next five FOMC meetings um, uh, in 2022, uh, you know, the, the, Fed, the Fed funds rate ends the year at three and a quarter. And again, that's still uh, nearly two points below what I think will the inflation rate will be. So 50 basis points doesn't cut it. Uh, and by ruling out uh, something larger than that, uh, he just uh, sends a signal that is his hands are, are, are tied, and I think the markets are uncomfortable with that, uh, that conclusion. Stephen, it's Tim. Uh, thanks for joining us. The two sides of the stagflation argument you're making, uh, I think, are only exacerbated by reorganized globalization, if I will. Um, so the fragmentation of the global economy, the isolationism, um, I think adds to both sides of this equation. Put that in the context of the duration of how long you think we're going to encounter this. 
Well, Tim, that's that's what led me to write this article on stagflation a couple of years ago. I completely agree with that. And, you know, I would add to that, of course, the zero COVID in China, along with the um, repercussions of, of the war in Ukraine. And that will, um, I think, keep the supply side uh, you know, well extended um, in terms of a, a clogging uh, price discovery uh, through the next several years. So that's why it's even more incumbent on the Fed to be aggressive on demand management uh, to uh, deal with this um, protracted congestion on the supply side. Stephen, when you say stagflation is a base case, do you do you foresee that as being a, a long, um, will, will it hit the economy for a long time, do you think? Or is this the kind of thing where, you know, the Fed could actually eventually get to five and, and we get out of it? And that's 2023. Well, I don't know, Melissa, you know, you, you, you never know how long these things are gonna last, uh, but um, we do know that monetary policy operates with a long lag. Um, you know, as Tim just alluded to, the supply congestion is here to stay for the uh, foreseeable future, and the lagged impacts of Fed tightening on the demand side are probably not going to play out uh, uh, full force until late 2023, 2024 uh, at a minimum. And to the extent that the Fed stays cautious, uh, you know, we could be dealing with excess demand for even longer than that. So this inflation problem is uh, widespread, it's persistent and likely to be protracted. And so the Fed needs to take that into greater consideration in formulating its monetary policy strategy. Stephen, it is great to get your thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Stephen Roach. Bonwin, are we priced for stagflation for that scenario? Um, I don't think we are. I don't think you've heard um, corporate execs come out and address that issue. I don't think, um, despite the fact that we have had multiple compression, I don't think that you've seen that really priced into earnings, right? Like we've had multiple compression, we talk about the two levers, but if you have a stagflationary type of situation, you're gonna see the earnings part of that equation get ratcheted down. And until we start to see that, I, I don't think it's priced in. Yeah, and I would say agreed wholeheartedly. And Stephen Roach knows more about all of this, you know what I mean? He's forgotten more than I'll ever know. I just don't see any way the Fed funds is anywhere near 5%. The last time it was near 5% was at 2007. And think about where the Fed's balance sheet was back then. And I get it, they weren't dealing with negative rates and they weren't dealing with inflation where it is. But the last time it was at 2.5% was 2018. And the stock market went down 20% in a straight line in two months. And what did the Fed do? They pivoted. So I just don't think that all of these people who, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of very smart people think rates are going much higher and they should be going much aggressively. I think I heard Jim Cramer say he thinks that they should do an intra-meeting, you know, 1% hike. They yeah, they okay. should have done that before. Okay, but what I'm saying is, is that now that we have the weakening economy, okay, which is the thing that they're kind of trying to solve for, they have the, they run the risk of accelerating it dramatically to the downside. Europe is likely to be in a recession because of this war. China is obviously having a very difficult time right now. And we might 
might not be far behind it. And you throw that R word out there with the negative wealth effect from the stock market going down, from housing that's clearly peaking and going lower, and rates higher, and then the spike in consumer credit that we've seen, it really does make for a nasty thing. I think the Fed, after they get done with these two hikes, they're going to actually have to be very thoughtful, especially if they're going to follow through with their QT, because they do run the risk of putting us into a recession. I'm going to be yelled at by our producers, but I've got one question, Tim, and I'm wondering, you know, do equity investors, would they react in a more negative way to a recession scenario or to a stagflation scenario? Well, the two different time horizons. I, I think stagflation yeah. is something that's unfortunately going to carry on for a long time. I, I want to see deep and severe. Let's get this over with. And, and, and I do think that that's what the market is calling for. Yeah. All right. Coming up, we've got a pair of earnings alerts on deck. Shares of Applied Materials and Palo Alto Networks heading in different directions after reporting. We'll bring you the details next. And former head of Square Capital, Jackie Reeses, is joining us in just moments. She will break down the current state of fintech. The names that will survive, the ones in trouble, don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alerts on applied materials. The stock slumping after reporting a miss in the top and bottom lines. The company also posting weak guidance for the third quarter. Christina Parsonevelis joins us more with the, with the report. Christina. Thanks, Melissa. Much like the rest of the semiconductor space right now, much of the downside or the initial downside for applied materials is due to supply chain issues and not demand. Applied is the biggest maker of machinery used to make chips. And the CEO warning, quote, demand for applied material products and services have never been stronger, yet we remain constrained by ongoing supply issues. Cash flow also taking a hit. Free cash flow came in at about $205 million versus the $1.4 billion estimate. Although keep in mind, they did give back about $2 billion to shareholders in terms of share repurchases and dividends. The stock, though, in bear market territory this year, falling over 31% year-to-date from its January high, much 
like its competitors, LAM, similar story, ASML, also a similar story. But from a valuation standpoint, Applied Materials appears slightly cheaper than the rest when you're looking at uh, its lower forward price-to-earnings ratio. And lastly, chipmakers like Samsung and Intel, they rush or they are rushing to order machinery from Applied to build enough capacity to end this industry-wide shortage. But today's report shows those same shortages are leaving Applied Materials without the parts it needs to make its equipment. Christina, thank you. Thanks. Christina Partsnevelis on AMAT. And you got to wonder with the supply constraints, if the solution to the supply constraints will be less in demand because of the things we were just talking about, namely recession and stagflation, Tim, what do you think of this trade? I, I, you know, yeah, well, I, there's a chart that I, I, I will have them throw up there if they still have it, which is just how semiconductors over the last month have actually outperformed the S&P by almost 7%. Um, and on the last five days, probably by about four and a half percent. Am I telling you that high multiple tech stocks are, are out of the woods? No, but I'm telling you that a lot of these semiconductor companies haven't talked about uh, issues around demand. They, you know, they've talked about supply dynamics for for a year and a half. Um, they are free cash flow generative companies. Amat trades at 13 times next year. It's it's not a chip maker. It's it provides the equipment to make the chips. Um, their demand, I think, is a little different. I think some of their exposures a little different. I think this is kind of interesting after a big pullback. But I, you know, again, I, I, semiconductors are showing some defensiveness, at least after a major pullback, maybe not forever. But we haven't heard about demand. It's one more thing here where, you know, I, I, that's what concerns me. Yeah, I would just mention, I, I mean, I agree with what Tim said. I mean, this is, you know, a semiconductor equipment company, right? So if you're making fabs, if deep globalization, if the move away from some of these places that have been the source of the supply chain issues, you know, <laughs> AMAT might start to benefit from that um, over the next year or so. And I just say very soon, you know, a lot of investors and analysts are going to start looking at the 2023 estimates. And Tim just mentioned trading about 13 times, expected EPS growth of about 13, a peg, a PE to growth of about one. And, you know, he just said free close. Cash flow uh, generative. I mean, this is a, it's a good company at a very good valuation. And like anything, no one knows what the low is going to be here. And are we one quarter away from a massive guide lower from an Intel, from an AMD? I don't know. And that would certainly go down with it. But right here, I think at about 12 times or so, it seems like a pretty reasonable valuation. All right. Palo Alto Networks also out with earnings after the bell. Shares are surging after a beat on the top and the bottom lines. The company also issuing strong guidance for the coming quarter. Let's get to Frank Holland, who's been on the Paul, Frank. Well, hey, Melissa, on the call just a short time ago, uh, but I want to talk about the stock really quick. That guidance really a driver for this price action we're seeing. Palo Alto guiding for revenue of 1.53 to 1.55 billion. That's above the street estimate. EPS guidance of 226 to 229 per share, well above estimates of 222. On the call, CEO Nikesh Arora citing strong cybersecurity trends, saying this about Russian cyber threats, quote, as you might expect, we're seeing heightened interest from commercial and government customers in Europe around mitigating this nation state activity. Aurora added that Palo Alto was able to manage supply chain to have product when many of their competitors did not. Very different story than we heard from Cisco just yesterday. Now this quarter, billing's up 40%. For anybody that doesn't know, that's money that's actually received from customers. Also 73% increase in deals, over $5 million. Palo Alto is trying to reach the rule of 60, a little bit different than that rule of 40 for a lot of other high growth companies. That is combined free cash flow margin and revenue growth. This quarter at 54, but the CFO says the company expects to get to 60 by next quarter. Back over to you. Frank Holland, thank you. Bono in a company that's actually benefiting from the Russia-Ukraine conflict. What do you, what do you make of PA and a W? 
Uh, a rare, a rare one indeed. I mean, it's kind of like the uh, the the anti AMAT. I mean, this thing trades around forty nine, fifty times forward. But if I'm thinking about <clears throat> decreases in capex or uh, a slowing enterprise type of spin, uh, this is the type of thing that you're, is going to be the last thing to get thrown out or ratcheted down when it comes to budgeting for cybersecurity. Digital asset safety is going to be at the top of mind for any executive. So I, I do think there there is some margin of safety, uh, you know, priced in there. I will say I would be interested to see a little bit more in terms of like book to billing. So, you know, are we seeing any divergence there? And does, that speaks to ability to actually collect from customers. You might, if you start to see weakness and ability to collect along that type of uh, um, a supply or demand chain, that might let you know one way or another where they're going to be uh, going forward in the next one or two fiscal quarters. Yeah, to just say from an earnings standpoint, the setup was pretty difficult. This thing is down, what, 35% of its lows today. It was at an all-time high on April 20th just a few weeks ago, if you think about that. So everything that Bonowin just said, I think investors are kind of buying into. But this one definitely got caught up in the last few weeks in this broad market sell It still trades a fat, fat multiple to sales. And on a gap basis, they lose money. And those are things that if it wasn't in cybersecurity, it would be getting like just creamed right now. You know what I mean? Even with with the good results, but um, again, you know, is it going to get back to the highs um, anytime soon? Not likely, but you know, the setup into it down 35% was not particularly great. All right, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. FinTech's future. The former head of Square Capital lays out what's next for the space. Her take on who's best positioned and who might not make it through. Plus, keeping an eye on Kohl's. The retailer staging a comeback after a rough earnings miss. But Karen's not entirely sold. The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the fintech space surging higher today. Toast, SoFi, Block, PayPal, Affirm. Among the major names seeing some pretty big gains, but can these gains last? Let's bring in Post House Capital CEO and former head of Square Capital, Jackie Reeses. Jackie, great to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Until this most recent rally, um, it has been a long, hard slog for a lot of these names. And I'm wondering if, if this results in some sort of reckoning in the space. Well, I think we've seen the reckoning in the last seven months. I mean, it's been tough since uh, the end of November. And if you look even year to date, the Nasdaq's down 20%, e-commerce enablement is down 35. All of these stocks have been absolutely impacted by inflationary pressure, where CPI is at 8.3%, the 10-year treasury is at 2.9%, 
commodity prices like oil up to $112 a barrel. And so even the volatility that we saw today and over the last month has really impacted this sector. But I think it's really overdone. And if you look at the performance relative to the growth of these companies, you'll see that it is misaligned and that these companies have taken a battering more than the relative overperformance that they've had. Because if you actually look at, at decomposing the multiples and the multiple compression, you'll see that most of the change in their valuations have been related to multiples, not performance, which today continues to be very strong. The concern, though, for investors is that on top of this multiple compression because of high valuation names getting a lower valuation in this kind of market, there's the next shoe to drop, and that's the impact on consumers with delinquencies. Delinquencies among subprime borrowers, at least, has actually they've actually gone up. And so can you can you help us understand you know, if the consumer, if consumer credit continues to deteriorate, how it affects these various companies, because it affects them in very different ways. Absolutely. And there is a bifurcation between those that have asset light balance sheets and those that don't. And so there's a wide swath of the payments market, the software companies that don't actually lean into any loans on their balance sheet. But while there obviously are some names that are very balance sheet heavy, like mortgage lenders, uh, those in buy now, pay later and other other credit markets. I do think you'll see an impact on the consumer um, as the markets change, as rates go up. But so far, we haven't seen it come into the data today. Hey, Jackie, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Um, so you talk about the multiples having come down a lot, but the multiples were in, you know, just crazy territory. And so they've come down but what, what is the right number for where they've come down and they're reasonable? Some of them still seem very expensive on many metrics. Yeah, you know, I, the, the metric that I use is that they were about 12 times revenue and now they're about 3.7 times revenue. And when you look over time today, they're below pre-COVID levels in terms of like a long-term growth trajectory. And so there is some overall resetting back to a more normative level of performance on these multiples. And so I, I do think that period of time between March 2020, or maybe it's May 2020, and then November of 2021 was probably more abnormal, and we're back down on a slope. But again, as I said, I think the fintech multiples, particularly some of the payments and crypto multiples, have been hurt relative to their growth rate. And so I do think they'll reset back to a more steady state, higher levels. But I think it'll take a few quarters to see that balance out and have the sector come back to a, a more moderate level of performance. Jackie, I want to uh, zero in on, on the last statement that you said in, in response to my question. And you said we haven't seen it in the numbers yet in terms of consumer weakening. What happens when we do start to see it in the numbers? I mean, how, how should we think about that for something like a buy now, pay later company like an Affirm? I mean, I would think that it would indicate that perhaps your the pool to whom you extend by now pay later becomes smaller. And so the growth trajectory for the company also slows down. And maybe that's not priced in yet. You know, I won't speak to any one company in particular. I'll speak to the industry mm -hmm. overall. I think there are some interesting dynamics of these companies, which is their short duration, high velocity loans. And so the ability to adjust performance on loans in the buy now, pay later industry is incredibly agile. And so I think what you'll see happen is that they'll increase the credit performance as it relates to who gets a loan. So they'll shrink the credit box. And so you will start to see some adjusting over time 
as the consumer credit markets tighten. But as of today, you haven't seen that. And so these lenders are able to continue to lend because of their ability to adjust so agilely versus those that are in long duration products like mortgage lenders, where they have to make credit decisions based on a 30 year performance of a loan payback. And so I do think there's some credit being paid to that. I also think these kinds of companies have the ability to take their loans and play in an asset light model. And so, so long as liquidity operates in the market, whether that be securitizations or a private financing market, you'll see the ability to take those loans, sell them off balance sheet, and continue to evolve their performance over time. Mm -hmm. Jackie, I hope we'll see you soon again. Thank Jackie you. Reese's. Good to see you. All right, Karen, you've dug into this space a lot. Uh -huh. You own some of these names. And so I'm wondering how you think about um, it in light of, of what's going on I in the market. I don't anymore, actually. Oh, don't well, anymore. I bought a firm, sold a firm, okay. bought PayPal, sold PayPal. However, I do own banks, right? Yeah. And um, to the extent that you're where you're going with credit, right, if it, you know, if it affects a firm or a square capital or someone like that, it's going to affect banks as well. So um, that's concerning that it's we're just at the very beginning of seeing credit quality sort of begin to deteriorate it hasn't even done that yet so that's somewhat concerning i still think though that so they, there's a bounce there but they just seem high i hear what she's saying down that they're down 70 some odd percent Interesting. So you made a great point about subprimes and the defaults that are coming right now. Okay. So you would have uh, a couple years ago been able to say, okay, these guys just benefit from the secular shift of online payments and this, stuff. but they all moved in to buy now, pay later, right? So we know that Square bought a company. We know that PayPal bought a company. I think PayPal does not have a whole heck of a lot of exposure, not the way obviously Affirm and Square do now. They paid $29 billion in stock for that company. Here's the thing about PayPal. Jackie just said this. This stock is not even only come back to its pre-pandemic highs, it got back to its match lows from March of 2020 here. It's down 75%. This is a company that's probably gonna grow earnings and sales, let's say mid-teens for the next few years or so. That makes sense to me versus an affirm, which is also down 75%, which is not expected to be profitable for like four years or something like that. So I think that not all fintechs are kind of, you know, I mean, I think there's gonna be lots of opportunities and some very quality names. Bono, and just quickly, what's your pick in the space? <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> I like PayPal. I also like Square. I think it's here in the present and the future. You have uh, actual Square. That's for transactions of SMEs. You actually have the Cash App. I think that like addresses a large cohort. And then you have like the future upside related to blockchain. All right. Coming up, Kohl's staging a comeback after a massive earnings miss. But Karen's not entirely sold on this retailer yet. She'll explain why. Plus, Deer outrunning the broader market this year. But options traders say this name could get caught in the headlights after earnings. We got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Kohl's staging a comeback despite posting a miss on earnings and slashing guidance for the year. Shares ending the day up nearly 4.5%. CEO Michelle Gass saying that she expects to receive final bids to take the company private in the next few weeks. But Karen is not sold on what this company is trying to sell. Oh, I think I know what they're trying to sell. So Kohl's today announced a miss and a guide lower. That in itself was not so surprising. What was really surprising is that last night, after the close, they put out an 8K. Okay, it was two sentences long. I think we have the first sentence here. It's really important. On May 12th, Kohl's Corporation announced that Greg Revell, the company's chief marketing officer, will be departing the company effective June 1st. Okay, it took them six days 
to come out with that sentence. Six days. Elon Musk could have made a filing quicker than that. Also, they didn't announce it. Google it. You can't find anything about him leaving. You can't find an AK. You can't find a news report. They didn't announce it, at least to the shareholders. And then the second sentence, which they must have worked through the night to get that done because they got it done the same day it happened, was that the chief marketing officer, I'm sorry, the, the chief merchandising officer was leaving. So what's interesting about that? May 12th is the day after the very hotly contested shareholder meeting where the board said, trust us, trust our plan. Don't go with the activists who want to sell it. I find it nearly impossible to believe that May 11th, the day of that meeting, when they should have told shareholders that the merchandising and marketing chiefs were both leaving, that they failed to mention that, and it took them six days to come to this 8K. That's ridiculous. It's offensive also as a shareholder. So let's go back to January when they received multiple bids and chose to sort of ignore them, giving lip service to the process. It's five months, four months later, and now they're just sort of going to receive bids in a few weeks. I don't know if it gets sold or not, but I can tell you the value they will get now is a lot less than the value that they would have gotten in January. But after those bids, they said, trust us. Here's our investor day. Here's our great plan. The stock went from 58 to 51 on the day of their great plan. So I think, you know, they've, I don't know. I, I just feel like they've destroyed value for shareholders, right? The expressions of interest that they've had, I hope, are still there. But it's hard to believe that this management will do the right thing. Maybe they'll be shamed into it. I don't know. But on their cheery conference call today, where they gave one sentence to the chief marketing and merchandising officer leaving, but really had a cheery outcome, that seems quite impossible for me to believe, but let's say you do. I still don't think that's enough for you to deliver value to the shareholders like you could have and maybe still can through a sale. That's the only reason that the stock is up, that they hopefully they will be shamed into a sale. That doesn't seem like a good strategy, Tim. Um, it's rare that we see the chairwoman worked up to this degree oh, about any issue. <laughs> oh, I, I love to see her so exercised. Um, and she's she's dead on and she's often exercised for reasons that I think are, are there to protect a lot of other investors. Uh, I guess. And my question back to you, Karen, is for, for a company that's got uh, an outside bid uh, and, and there's been there's been activist investors and there's a couple bids out there. Um, to what extent is there something to do here? Again, you, you, you believe that the, the management in their bid to take private is is being less than forthcoming. Um, but ultimately, it does seem like there's a floor under this stock that is significantly higher than where it is, let alone the fact that it trades at you know, five and a half to six times next year. I don't love their business, um, but it's wicked cheap. And I just don't understand why the market is doing to it what I think you believe is a lot of intrinsic value higher. So I think that people don't believe their plan, right? It does seem cheap. But people don't believe their plan. They haven't been able to recover the way a Macy's has, the way a Dillard's have. Their margins aren't as good as either of those. So to the extent that they rule out the possibility of a higher offer and we need to stick with this plan, which despite coming in at about 2.2 of operating margin, they're, they're guiding to, I don't know, six to seven for the year. I don't know. I just I, I, it's, I find it hard to believe them. So I, for me, I think the best they can do for shareholders is to sell the company.
coming up. I hope they're watching. I really do. Uh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That's the word from options traders who say the industrial giant could be about to get mowed down after earnings. We'll bring you the action next. Plus, final offer, the latest on Elon Musk's Twitter deal and why a lower price could be out of the question. The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. They say nothing runs like a deer, and the rest of the industrials certainly haven't this year. The stock outperforming the XLI ETF by about 20 percent so far in 2022. Deer reports earnings tomorrow before the bell, and despite the gains, options traders are betting the stock will limp and not run into the weekend. Mike has got the action. Mike. Yeah, seven times average daily put volume. And right now, the options market's implying a move of just under 7%, considerably more than the 3.7 that it has typically averaged over the last eight quarters. The most active options for most of the day today were the May 350 puts. We saw those trading for about $6.60 a contract. Late in the day, we actually saw some of the May 300 puts trading. Seems like some options traders might be a little bit concerned that there could be some downside. That could be, of course, also because the stock has considerably outperformed both the industrials and the S&P more broadly, and they're hedging. All right. Thank you, Mike. We'll see you tomorrow. That's when the full show airs. Tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time for Options Action. Coming up, the latest on Elon Musk's Twitter deal with the company's execs say isn't going to happen. The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Elon Musk's bid for Twitter may not actually be on hold. Execs at the social media company reportedly telling employees the deal is proceeding as planned, but they won't be renegotiating the price of the purchase. This just days after Musk said the deal was on pause. Shares of the social media platform popped as much as 4.5% on the news, end of the day higher by uh, more than 1% here. Karen, I mean, I don't know what people were expecting Parag Agarwal, the CEO, to say. Right. I don't know a lower price. I mean, that'd be nuts. That would be crazy. He's doing the right thing. He's saying, look, we have a signed deal and you're working towards a deal. There is no such thing as pause, especially for an issue that if it were that important to him, he could have negotiated a very, very clear uh, sort of containment about the number of bots. He didn't. They revealed it in in their SEC documents. So I don't think he's got any legs to stand on, except for he might be the only bidder there. But there's no way the board should cave now. No way. Bonwin? They won't cave. um, But the thing is, this this thing could still get caught up in a long, protracted litigation or settlement, which means that it still gives some wiggle room for investors, shareholders, to you know, not want to deal with the back and forth. So I, I totally agree with you and Karen. I mean, what other position is the guy going to take besides saying, listen, you signed it, you bought it, you bought it how you saw it, this is what it is. But it doesn't mean that you can't see continued volatility in the stock price, and that's ultimately what viewers care about. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Bono in. Every show we get up here and we tell you what companies you should buy and sell, I want to remind investors that you should have some cash allocation, particularly if the opportunity cost is rising for, for, for other reasons and you're feeling the pinch. Have some allocation in cash. Don't feel the need to buy every day. Okay, so just cash, not new holdings. Cash. Tim. Speaking of holdings, new holdings, actually one of Jackie's board seats, a company down, a bank down in Latin America that's fintech, but really it's brick and mortar and I think it's growing and I think it's actually outperforming here. Karen. 
Yes, in spite of the rant, I am long Coles. for the reason being, I think they might just feel they have to do the right thing for the shareholders. Something new. They haven't been doing that lately, but there's a chance it gets taken out higher. Shame or a lawsuit are powerful forces. <laughs> Dan. Yeah, I just say Target. I know you're waiting for three days. That one looks going to be interesting somewhere in that 140, 150 range. Very soon. All right. Thanks for watching. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.